Welcome to the RUF City Campus Podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit givetoruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome back. It's been a long time. Spring break month. Uh, a lot of you guys left. Um, we had snow days. It's been a long time since we've been able to study the book of Colossians together. And I'm excited that we get to get back into it tonight. In case you need a reminder, one of the big themes, one of the big questions in the book of Colossians is, can I change? Like, can I not just rearrange the circumstances of my life, but can I, can you as a person change deep down? Can we have deep, lasting, substantive change? And I think that's actually a good question for us to reflect upon as we draw near to the end of another school year, draw near to the end of another semester. Um, As we reflect on, like, have I changed, have you changed over the last four months, over the last nine months, over the last 12 months? Have you become a better version of yourself, a worse version of yourself? Have you stayed the same? Have you come closer to realizing your dreams and ambitions for your life? Are you further away? Have you become more generous, more loving, more kind, more forgiving? Or have you become more stingy, more bitter, more cynical? Like what's happening to us as we make our way through life? Are we changing? Are we changing for the better? Are we changing for the worse? Are we staying the same? Can people actually change? That's one of the questions at the heart of the book of Colossians. And the passage we're going to look at tonight is going to help give us an answer to that question. Short passage, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. Let's look at it together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray, since this is God's word and not mine. Let's pray and ask for his help. God, we do thank you for this word. We thank you that you are speaking into our lives. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear it tonight. And that as we hear it, we would actually be changed. It's in Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. The story that you are living in has the power to change you. The story that you imagine yourself to be living in has the power to change you. I heard a a sort of heartbreaking example of this. Actually, this week, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, This American Life. Do we have any This American Life listeners in the room? Man, if you guys are podcasters and you're not listening to This American Life, you're doing it wrong. It's so good. Great stories, really compellingly and beautifully told. So I'm listening to This American Life this week, and they're telling a story about a man named Leonard Davis. And Leonard Davis had a pretty traumatic uh, identity crisis pretty late in his life. He's in his mid-50s, and his father is getting sick. He's nearing the end of his life. His father's ending the near of his life. 
or nearing the end of his life. And um, he's trying to just sort of help him navigate his final days. And Leonard's uncle comes to him. So his father's brother comes to Leonard and says, listen, I have a secret, but I can't tell you the secret until after your father dies. And Leonard's like, come on, dude, what is that? Like, why are you telling me this? I'm just trying to help my dad in his final days and grieve his loss. And, and why, are you, why are you telling me this? Leave me alone. I don't want to think about that. Don't tell me the secret. Like, don't bother me anymore. So the weeks and months pass. Uh, Leonard's father dies. And uh, they're tending to the matters of his estate. And he sees his uncle again. And they start talking, and he kind of goes after his uncle, and he's like, listen, I have not been able to stop thinking about what you said to me, that um, you have this secret that somehow you can't tell me until my father is dead. Well, now my father is dead, and I want to know the secret. And his uncle's like, no, 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 I don't want to tell you anymore. It's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. And Leonard's like, and Leonard's like no, that, that ain't happening. Like, you got to tell me now. And so he really presses in, and finally his uncle is like, all right, fine. The man that you just buried, that you thought was your father, was not your father. And what his uncle begins to tell him is, so Leonard has an older brother, and he's much older. He's like nine or ten years older than him. And what his uncle begins to tell him is, your parents tried for years to have another child, and they couldn't have one. And so one day they came to me, and they asked me to be a sperm donor. And so I did. And several months later, you were born. So the man that you just buried that you thought was your father was actually your uncle. And the man, me, that you thought was your uncle was actually your father. But this is what he said when he, start, when he has this conversation with his uncle for the very first time. The story that he thought he was living was not the story that he was living. And this is what he said. He said, it felt like he had spun me around a hundred times and I was just standing there reeling. Because the story that he thought he was living in, this life that he thought he had been living, this relationship with his father, this relationship with it, he had to rethink everything, reorient himself to the world. He didn't believe his uncle, who was actually his father. He didn't believe him, so he went to get DNA testing to, to prove it, to make sure that it was true. And he gets the DNA testing back, and he finds out that it's actually true. The man that he thought was his father was not his father. And this is what he said in the moment that he read the results. He got a letter from the doctor who did the DNA test, and this is what he said. He, he said, I guess, I guess I feel abandoned. I know that doesn't make sense, but I feel like I was abandoned by my father. See, he, he'd lost his roots. The story that he thought he was living had completely changed underneath his feet. He realized that it wasn't true, and it totally changed him. He had to, he had to reorient himself to this new reality, to this new story. What Paul is doing in this passage is he's telling us, if you want to change, if you, if you want to become the person that you were created to be, if you want the fruit of the Spirit to flow out of you, if you want to be the kind of person who has love and joy and peace and patience that just flow out of you, Paul is saying you must experience the same kind of reorientation. You've got to find yourself in a different story. That's what he's saying here in this passage. Now, the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what story are we living in? What's the story that we are presently living in? And I think for most of us, maybe all of us, it can be summed up in four words. You need to win. That's the story that you're living in. You need to win. 
You need to win at being smart. You need to win at being kind. You need to win at being funny. You need to win at being talented. You need to win at being beautiful. You need to win the resume game. You've got to stack up more than everybody else so that you can get ahead in life. You need to win at being a good son or a good daughter to your parents, to meeting their expectations for you. You need to win at pursuing justice. In order for your life to matter, you've got to win. That's the story that most of us are living. And the problem with, with that being the story that we're trying to live, that like when you wake up, when your feet hit the floor every day, and that being the story that you're embodying, is it actually sucks the joy out of life. Because if you need to win at something, if you need to win at being beautiful, if you need to win at being the best, if I need to win at being the best dad or the best pastor or the best husband, it actually sucks the joy out of being a dad and a pastor and a husband. Because I can't enjoy that thing. I'm looking for it to give me something that it can't give me. And it, it won't work. It actually sucks the joy out of life. But that's the story that most of us are living. Now, Paul, here in this passage, is inviting us into a new story. So what is that new story? What are the plot points in that new story? Well, the first one we see in verse 3. Right there at the beginning of verse 3. It's not, you need to win. It's actually something... Uh, much less exciting. You have died. That's the first plot point in the new story that Paul is inviting us into. You have died. Now, he's not talking about literal physical death here, because you're sitting here, I'm standing here, we're breathing, um, our hearts are beating. So he's not talking about literal physical death, he's talking about spiritual death. And he's, he's drawing on this idea that that he's visited several times in the book of Colossians, this idea of union with Christ. That whatever is true of Jesus becomes true of the Christian. That whatever is true of Jesus becomes true of you when you put your faith in him. And so one of the things that's true of Jesus is that he died around about the year um, 33, 32 A.D., he died. His heart, not, not mostly dead, like Princess Bride dead, but all the way dead. His heart stopped beating. His lungs emptied of air. He hung limp on the cross. He was taken down. He was put into a tomb, and he stayed there Friday to Sunday, dead. Dead. And what this passage is saying is that when that happened to him, if you are united to Jesus by faith, it happened to you as well. That God now treats you as though you died with Jesus. And we're going to come back to that idea in a little bit and talk about, okay, what exactly does that mean practically for us in our everyday lives? But that is the first plot point, that you died with Jesus. But that's not the only plot point. That's not the end of the story. Look at verse 1. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. So not only did you go into the tomb with Jesus, you actually rose up out of the tomb with Jesus. You've been raised with him. You're no longer spiritually dead, but you're actually alive. When his lungs filled up with air again, when his heart started beating again, so did yours, spiritually speaking. That you were raised to new life. And what Paul is saying here, and this is key, this is crucial, we're going to return to this idea next week as well, that there is an old you and a new you. And the old you is completely wrapped up in and defined by what you do. Good and bad. And everything in between. The old you is completely defined by and wrapped up in what you do and who you are and how you choose to spend your time and your energy. And what this passage is saying is that old you is actually dead. 
And a new you has risen up out of the grave. Not defined by what you do and how you choose to spend your time, but defined completely, completely wrapped up in what Jesus did. In who He is. And how He chose to spend His life. Paul, in another passage, in another book, in Galatians 2, chapter 20, or in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he puts it this way. He says, I have been, ra- I have been crucified with Christ. I've gone into the tomb. The old me has died with Jesus, as he's saying. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, who loved me and gave himself for me. So he's saying, this is the second plot point in your new story. You died with Jesus and you were raised to new life with Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. It gets even better than that. Because what does he say in verse, verse 1, the end of verse 1? He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So he says, you've died, you've risen with him, and now you are seated with him. You're seated with Jesus. Jesus has actually gone up into the throne room of heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and you are there present with him, spiritually speaking, if you are united to him. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, one of the things that it means that Jesus is seated is that is what kings in the ancient Near East would do. When they would go out, they would take their troops out and they would conquer some other people, and they would come home with their head held high, and they would go into the throne room and they would sit down. And it was a way of saying, I have won the battle. The victory is mine. My work is complete. And now I get to sit down and enjoy that victory. And what Paul is saying is that that is what Jesus has done. He has won the victory over sin, over death. And now he is seated. That work is completed. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. He put death to death. And that we are seated with him. In other words, we get to enjoy that victory with him. So we are seated with him, but there's more to it than that because it's not just that we are seated with Jesus, but we are seated at the right hand of God, which is a really significant thing. To sit at someone's right hand is to sit in the place of honor, to sit in the place of fellowship, to sit in the place of, of friendship and in, like mutual enjoyment of one another. And Paul is saying that that is where we sit, we sit in the place of enjoyment, in the place of honor with Jesus at God's right hand. Right, not, not in some future day, but right now. Our lives are caught up with Jesus, seated at God's right hand. Think about it this way. I don't know who your hero is. Think about your hero. Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, Tom Brady, LeBron James, the Pope, uh, Beyonce, Barack and Michelle. I don't know who your hero is, but imagine... Uh, that your hero is being honored. That someone has decided to, to throw a huge party, a huge celebration in honor of your hero. And somehow you made it onto the guest list. And you make your way to this evening, you make your way into the ballroom. It's one of those fancy, like when you go to the Golden Globes and like all the who's who, like everybody who matters in the world is there in that room eating dinner together. It's one of those kind of rooms. Except the, the, your hero, Meryl Streep, is at the, at the table at the front. She's up on the stage. And they're honoring her, her life, her legacy, um, all that she represents. And, uh, and the event is about to begin. The lights begin to go low and the music starts to play. But Meryl's not up there. She's not up there at the front. And there's kind of a buzz around the room. Where's Meryl? What's going on? 
And you begin to realize that Meryl's actually making her way through the room. She's looking for someone. And as she makes her way through the room, she makes her way all the way to you. And she says, listen, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Your, your seat is not down here on the floor. Your seat is actually up with me on the stage. I need you to come with me. I want everyone else to see that you are with me and that I am with you. And I don't want to enjoy any of this evening without you right by my side. It would, it would be a, a huge honor to, to be attached to Meryl Streep in such a way. Like to enjoy everyone else celebrating her greatness and her saying, I don't want to be celebrated without you right here. And Paul is saying, that is where we sit. That, that God wants to be seen with us. And he wants us to be seen with him. He wants, to, he wants us to enjoy him enjoying us that we are seated at his right hand, the place of honor, the place of joy. This one in particular hits me um, in, a, in, a, in a powerful way because one of my biggest fears is that people are just tolerating me. That like people don't actually enjoy me. People don't want to be around me. They're just tolerating me. And I will never know it because y'all are nice and you're not telling me that you're just tolerating me. But I'll never know it. But Paul is saying, listen, God doesn't merely forgive you. He doesn't merely tolerate you. He invites you into his presence. He says, sit here with me. That's a beautiful, powerful thing. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 3. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. That phrase there, that your life is hidden with Christ, that word hidden means, means to be kept safe, to be protected, that nothing, nothing can get to you, nothing can take you down. It's as if your life matters so much to God that he takes it and he hides it inside Jesus as though Jesus is this, this uh, impenetrable vault. And he... Your life is so precious to him. He treasures it so much that he takes it and hides it inside Jesus and says, listen, nothing can touch you here. Nothing can destroy you here. No ultimate harm can come to you when you are hidden in Jesus. And then he continues in verse 4 and he says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So it's not just about your present, it's actually about your future. That from beginning to end and beyond the end, your life is hidden, protected, safe in Jesus. And Paul is saying, when you are in Christ, this becomes your new story. You've died. You've been raised to new life. You are seated with him, accepted by him, enjoyed by him. You are hidden with him, protected, and you have a future in glory with him. That's your new story. And what he says is, listen, we've got to learn to, to live in light of that new story. He says in verses 1 and 2, he says, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above. He keeps repeating that phrase, the things that are above. Verse 2, he says, and, and not on the things that are on earth. Now, we hear that language of things that are above versus things that are on earth, and we think spiritual good, physical bad. And that actually is not, that's Gnostic. That's not Christianity. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not drawing a line between the spiritual world and the physical world and saying like, 
set your mind on things above. Don't worry about school. Don't worry about friendships. Don't worry about money. Don't worry about any of that stuff. Just be this esoteric person who just lives in the clouds and doesn't really think about real life or justice or love or any of those things. That's not what he's saying. The language in the Bible, when the Bible talks about earthliness or worldliness, um, it doesn't mean physicality. That's the Bible's shorthand for things that are opposed to God's kingdom. The things of the world, the things of the earth, are, are the things that are opposed to God's kingdom. And so Paul is saying, listen, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. In other words, set your mind on Jesus, on the fact that you are hidden in him, that your life is wrapped up in him. And let that not be a way to escape from the world, but actually to reorient yourself to the world. Not a way to get away from this life, but to actually re-engage with this life in a newer, richer way. In other words, to live into a different kind of story. A story that is not wrapped up in you, but a story that is wrapped up in Jesus. Now, I want to apply this to three different things, and then we'll be done. Because we've got to get out of here pretty soon. Um, three different things. What, what does it look like to live as a participant in this new story with your past, with your present, and with your future? What does it look like to live with this new story in light of your past? Some of you are trying to outrun your past. Like the fact, the reason that you came to New York City is you were trying to get away from your past. Things that you had done, the way that you had acted, uh, relationships that you've been a part of, things that have been done to you. You're trying to get away. You're trying to run away from your past. Some of you are not trying to run away from your past. You're actually trying to out. You're, you're trying to um, live up to your past. That you were very successful in high school and everybody has high expectations for you. Your hometown has high expectations for you. Your family, your community that you came from has high expectations for you. Your parents have high expectations for you and you are trying to live up to those high expectations. But whether you're, whether you're trying to live up to your past or outrun your past, you'll, you'll, you'll never actually have peace. Because in both of those situations, your past is actually, it owns you. Your past has power over you. And the only way to get away from that power, the only way to separate yourself from it is to see that Jesus has actually taken that past and crucified it. That it has died with him. That the things that you have done, the things that have been done to you, the things that you're trying to get away from, the expectations that other people have, they are dead in the tomb with Jesus. And the only way that you will actually experience peace and rest from those things is to find yourself as a part of that story. But in the present, you and I were trying to win. We're trying to win. We feel that, I feel that my life won't matter. It will be insignificant unless I win at fill in the blank. But the only way for us to be free is for us to see ourselves as a part of a different kind of story. Because if I have died, if my life is not wrapped up in my success or my failure, but my life is actually wrapped up in Jesus' success, in the things that Jesus has done, then I can actually be free. I can be free to fail or make a B and not be devastated. 
Because my identity, my significance as a human being is not wrapped up in my performance. So I'm, I'm free to fail, which actually means I'm free to risk and try new things. But I'm also free to succeed. I'm free to succeed and not gloat and not feel like I have to kind of beat my chest and be like, look at me, how great I am. And you know what the biggest fear of successful people is? Can I keep it up? Can I duplicate it? And so I'm free to succeed and not be afraid about whether or not I can keep it up. And so in the present, the only way to experience real, deep, true freedom is to find yourself as a part of this story. And what about your future? The fear of the unknown. Man, this is one of the conversations that I have the most with myself and with you guys. What will happen to me? What will happen to you? Will you get the internship? Will you get the job? Will you get the career? Will you get the spouse? Will you be okay? Will you be happy? Will you be fulfilled? Or will you be lonely? Will you be taken care of? And the only way to have hope in the midst of those questions is to know I have died. And I've risen. And now I am seated at the right hand of the Father. That my life is hidden inside Jesus. That my future is secure. That my future has nothing to do with my success or my failure. And everything to do with the fact that Jesus has died and risen and ascended. That it is completely wrapped up in him. Which means that we actually have nothing to fear about the future. It is impossible for God to withhold the things that we need. Because our future is wrapped up in him. The story that you're living in has the power to change you. And the question is, what's, the, what's your story? What's the story that you're living in? Are you living in a story that is wrapped up in your success or failure? Or are you living in a story that is wrapped up in Jesus's? That's the question. Would you pray with me? Thank you.